became involved in adultery. As a result, his marriage went on the rocks and his ministry was destroyed. Since he was a strong Christian leader in our area, this brother's fall came with a resounding crash. His church splintered into a dozen fragments and hurting, confused people were scattered all over our city. A year and a half after all that happened, I received a phone call at 7.30am one Sunday. It was this former pastor and he said, would you mind if my wife and I came to church this morning? I said, why would you even call and ask that question? Of course we wouldn't mind. Well, he said, you know, this is my second wife and I'm divorced from my first. Are you aware of this? I said, sure, I'm aware of it. Well, he said, I tell you, Jerry, we've been trying for eight months now to find a place to worship. The last time we tried was a month ago. That morning we were asked from the pulpit to leave. We'd been met at the door of many other churches by pastors who heard my wife and I were coming. They asked us not to come in. They said it would be too messy, would cause too much trouble. Still others have heard that we might show up and called in advance to ask us not to come. He said, frankly, I don't think we could handle it again if we were to come and be an embarrassment to you and be asked to leave. I just don't know what would happen. My wife is close to a nervous breakdown, and by now this man was weeping. I know that you have a video room for overflow crowds, he said. If you want, you can put us in that room where no one will see us and let us watch the service. I said, listen, you be there and I'll welcome you at the door. So he came with his wife and their little baby. They came late and they sat in the back. The compounding thing that was many of the people who had been hurt through his fall were now part of our congregation. Nevertheless, we extended fellowship to that man and the Lord did a cleansing and healing in his life. We shed so many tears together. I will never forget how he grabbed me and buried his head on my shoulder, a man 15 to 20 years my senior. He wept like a baby and held me like a drowning man and he said, Jerry, can you love me? I've spent my life loving people, but I need someone to love me now. In the weeks and months that followed, he met with our elders regularly and he wept his way back to God through a most intense, sometimes utterly tearing repentance. If ever in my entire life I've seen godly sorrow for sin, I saw it in that man. He literally fell to the floor before our elders and grabbed their feet and implored them, Brothers, can you ever forgive me? God healed that man and restored him to wholeness. And today he's back in ministry. I say to you, that brother was restored only because God enabled us to love and accept and forgive him. Love, acceptance, forgiveness, those three things are absolutely essential to any ministry that will consistently bring people to maturity and wholeness. If the church is to be a force for God in the world, that it should be, it must learn to love people, accept and forgive them. I read this book every year in January. That's the opening story. And the book is just full of stories about how the church needs to be relevant. And I guess I love the book because it just talks about the messiness of life and 
how we need to respond to that. Now, Catalyst Church, our theme for this year is Messy Church. It's not that we've suddenly become a messy church. We've always been one. But sometimes we need to focus on the reality that how do we deal with mess? We're all a mess. If you could see what goes on in my head and my heart most days of the week, you'd be shocked. Because I'm a mess, just like every one of you are. And I'm on a journey to allow God to heal me and make me whole. Do I make excuses for my mess? No. But do I have to deal and confront with the mess? Yes, I do. Life's messy. Turn on the news. Go to work. Go, go into a shop. Try and sell something to somebody. You guys know that. It might be teachers working in a school. It's messy. Everywhere life is a mess. But how do we respond to the mess? What's the church's reaction to be? I hope that Catalyst Church would be a church like that. I want to read you a little bit more of the story, if I can find the spot. Earlier in this book, I told you about a fallen pastor who was restored to fellowship because he found love, acceptance and forgiveness at East Hill. What I did not tell you is that a barrage of phone calls began coming to us at that time from irate pastors and people. They were terribly upset that we were accepting him and that would be interpreted as a license for what he had done. I suppose that's possible. Perhaps some people would be so blind, but they would make the wrong assumption. We neither were countenancing his sin nor trying to be noble and heroic in bucking to the tide of sentiment against him. We were simply and plainly loving him. A leading church official, my denominational leader, called me during this time and he asked me, do you know what you've done? I assured him, I did not. Well, he said, you've opened the doors of your church to every broken down pastor with ethical problems that there is. And my answer to that was praise the Lord. <laughs> if they can't come here, where can they go? Where do, they, where do we refer them? If people can't be healed in our congregation, where should we send them? Someone has to be the end of the line for messed up humanity. And we are not in a popularity contest. It's a great book. I really encourage you to read it. We're all messy people. We come from messy families, from messy backgrounds, from messy environments. It's just a reality of life. And because people are messy, I don't know how you can do life without people, but if you're going to do life with people, it's messy. So we can either masquerade around and pretend to be something that we're not or somebody that we're not, or we can hide and withdraw. A lot of people do that. Or we can turn and face the reality of loving one another, accepting one another, and forgiving people who have made horrible mistakes and walking hand in hand with them all the way through. So it's only a messy church because there's people in it. That's why it's messy. It will always be messy. But we want to work out of the mess into wholeness. But how we do that, the attitude with which we confront that is really significant. If it's judgmental, if it's critical, if we set up the us and them, for those that have made it and those that haven't, we're suddenly on the road to nowhere. So we've talked a lot before about the church being like an army of people that come together. We know we're on the front line of the invasion of the kingdom of heaven. We're, we're supposed to be going into the community and standing for, for leading the fight for righteousness. 
standing against injustice, you know, working for the marginalised and those who have been, you know, overlooked by life and exploited and, and crushed. We're supposed to be there for them. We're heading the resistance against the forces of evil. That's church as an army. We're fighting the good fight for the souls of those who've lost in darkness. We're an army of people who march on our knees through eyes of faith. We're countercultural people. What we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be driven by grace and mercy and humility. We're supposed to be a hospital, a place where people can come and find healing. So we minister to broken-hearted people. It's the premise of why the church exists. Bodies that are yoked in sickness and disease, we're there to minister to them, to help transform their mind and renew them to think about who they are in Christ, that they're new creations. Help their spirits that, are, that have been generated by God really rejoice in who they are and why God's made them the way he has. We're there to nourish people's souls and nurture them and, and bring them to the life that God wants them to have. That's church as a hospital where people find healing. They find restoration. They find hope. Where words of life are spoken open and relationships that are fractured and broken come back into wholeness. That's church as a hospital. But we're also church as a family. And it starts as church, as a family. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're accepted in the beloved. We're adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. We've got this bond of peace and unity of the Spirit. If you jump in a plane today and go to any nation in the world and go to a Christian church where they believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ, they're your brothers and sisters. It's family. It's an amazing thing that we can do that. We have that because we've been called out of the world to be separate, to be different but to love the world in the most extravagant and unconditional way. And we do that because of the love of our Father. It's the only reason that we can do it. We have this beautiful sense of belonging to the family of God that no one can ever take away from that. But if you think about an army, if you go and watch a, a military parade, right, they're all in uniform, they're all looking beautiful, they're all lined up, they march at the same time, there's precision, they're regimented, they thrive on looking perfect, and then go and have a look at a battle scene. There's blood and guts and death and misery and pain and destruction. There's the tension, an army, but an army at war. There's a constant tension there. If you think about hospitals, when you go into a hospital, it's all about sanitisation, isn't it? Everything's supposed to be clean and orderly and tidy. You never see a doctor with grubby fingerprints all over his you know, pants or a surgeon you know, with a cigarette hanging out his mouth. Oh, sorry, dropped a bit of ash on you. you know, it's all about sanitisation, about the environment of cleanliness. But when you think about what they're dealing with, it's ugly. People's faeces, their blood, their vomit, body fluids... Broken bones. Have you ever watched those movies where they're doing a knee reconstruction, they get the grinders out and the hacksaws and the hammers? There's this tension between messiness and brokenness and healing. There's a, there's a tension between being the army of God and, and standing strong in the spirit and holiness and all those things, and yet we're working with people whose lives have been shattered and broken. And when you think about family... I bet you if I walked into every one of your houses, I'd find a nice little portrait up on your wall of this family who never does anything wrong, who has perfect relationship, who can look into each other's eyes with great love and, and cherished affection. Reality, reality is families are messy. They are incredibly messy. 
Is that the real photo? Yeah. <laughs> but the reality is there's not one of us here that can say our families have got it together, that our marriages have arrived. Yeah, you be quiet there. You know, dealing with parents, dealing with kids, raising kids, it's a tough gig. Relationships, just to think about what it's like going and staying with your relatives. You, you know, you can only stay one day before you've got to leave because that's the re- relationships that we've got. There's tension. It's messy. Life is messy. We've got to pay bills, prioritise time, work everything out. So we've got this tension between who we are now in Christ and what he wants us to be and all the broken people around us, who includes us, that God wants us to minister to. And we need to decide as a church, do we want to have this polished, performance-based look where people can't come and be themselves? Do we put up a facade and do we pretend like, you know, crisp, clean worship? Everyone's got it together, smiley, happy faces, or do we come as we are? Broken, hurting, wounded, struggling, trying to get our lives together at that place where God's happy with us and we're content with ourselves. It is messy church because it's messy family. It's messy church because it's a messy hospital. It's a messy church because we're in an army. We're in a war. And it's messy. You show me a war that ever got one without bloodshed, without death, without great pain and trauma. It is messy church. It always has been. It always will be. And if the church isn't messy, then there's something wrong with the church. I guess scripture has this tension because there's the, this idea of, of being justified in Christ, that because of what Jesus did for us, we're right before God, right now, as I am. God accepts me just the way I am. I can't do anything more to please him. I can't do anything to make him love me less. I'm justified. There's great freedom in that. And yet the tension is God says, Mark, I love you as you are, but grow more like me. Change. Change into my likeness. That's messy. That's really messy process. And most of us, if we're perfectly honest, hate change. We hate being self-aware. We don't want to confront those issues in our life. And so we have to make the choice, are we going to be sincere with people? Are we going to be honest with people? Are we going to, you know, have that authenticity of being who we really are or are we going to play a game? So taking responsibility for cleaning up our messiness or celebrating who we already are. There's a tension there all the time. And we need to learn to get used to messiness. In fact, we need to learn to celebrate messiness. doesn't mean we condone wrong behaviour, but we love, accept and forgive people in every situation. It means embracing growth. It means maturity and change. It means engaging in helping others without you know, pride, saying I'm better, or prejudice, saying how could they? We need to enjoy being in the midst of messiness. So today I want to focus on church as family and how it's messy, really messy. But I think the mess is fantastic because the mess allows the power of God to come. The mess allows transformation to occur. And if we can continue to create an environment where people feel like they can be who they are and we can love them, and accept them and forgive them, that'll be a church to be reckoned with. But when we open up thought and discussion about the church, and I just don't mean Catalyst Church, I mean the church in Australia or around the world, 
we need to think in terms of recognising that there's an incredible erosion and an assault against family. Family as in nuclear family and family as in church family. There's an assault on. If I went round the room today and tapped people on the shoulders, there's a number of families that have been through incredible crisis in this church. Divorce, remarriage, blended families, the hardship and heartache of all that. You guys know your stories. There's fatherless families. There's single mothers who are struggling. The family is under assault. The rate of marriage breakdown in our nation used to be one in three. It's now two in three. And of the remarriages, the statistic is even worse. We've got this really Satan smart. If he can get to families and he can break them down, then the flow-on effect is tragic. But that happens in the church. I sat with a bunch of pastors a couple of months ago and they were sharing some of the statistics of the attendance of their church. And they were saying things like, if we get people coming to church now two out of every four weeks, we think that's pretty good. If we're going to be a family, then there's a level of commitment that comes with wanting to be and being able to be that family, which means we do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why do we do this? So I have a job. Why do we do this? Because if it's not about family, if it's just about ticking some box and saying, okay, God, I've done my bit today, we've, we've missed the point. The messiness is, is that we need to get involved in each other's lives and the, and the frustrations of that and the people that we don't quite get along with. And we don't understand everybody's family dynamics because they come from different backgrounds and they have different preferences and different opinions. And if we even talk just about is the Sabbath holy and should we be at church every Sunday, we'd have a variety of reasons just across this room. Why, yes, it has to be or no, it's not. But the essence of answering that question is assembling together part of them and a commitment to being together through the thick and the thin, through the hard and the tough. That's what it means to be part of messiness. I want to read you this parable. You know it really well. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got all together all he had set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. 
Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. So they began to celebrate. But meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? And he said, your brother's come home and your father's killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, this is a broken family. Any of you that are parents, put yourselves in the position of that father when you've got a rebellious son who comes and says, I want my bit. Imagine the broken hardness of that father. The story doesn't tell us the dialogue that went on between the son and the father, whether the father was heartbroken enough to to give him a, you know, son, what are you doing this for? Think about the consequences. We don't know what went on. But we did know what the father did was countercultural to those times. The second son was never supposed to get the inheritance given to him until the father died. But the father gave it to him and let him go. And when he did go, this son just wasted, squandered everything that he had. What a messy family. But the scripture says that when he came to his senses, this son realised that the love of his father that his father's home was the place that he needed to be in. And so from a worldly perspective, we could relate thousands of stories into this dynamic of a broken family. But from a heavenly perspective, this is God's response to brokenness. This is God's response to messiness. The story is not really about an earthly family. It's about our father, God, and about how he responds to us every time we get off track or make a mistake or fail His arms are always open and his love is always there and it's unconditional. It's unconditional. The interesting part is the way to clean up our messiness starts with our own revelation and self-analysis. Now I think about that young man sitting in that pig pen, right, covered in swine, feces and smelling. For a Jewish person, that was the ultimate insult because pigs were unclean. And he sat there and he had to deliberate with what he was going to do. He could have made all sorts of excuses, could have blamed everybody else, could have blamed his upbringing, but he didn't. He took responsibility for the situation he got himself into and said, I'm going to go home. He didn't blame shift. He didn't sidestep accountability. He said, I've sinned before heaven and my father and I'll take responsibility for that. I'll own it. They were my choices. They were nobody else's. And he went home. He didn't fail to listen and learn. How many people do you know in your Christian journey that don't listen, that don't learn from the mistakes, that end up in this cycle of messiness because God is speaking into that messiness all the time, showing the way out. But we need the revelation. 
We can tell people a thousand times, son, don't do that. Don't do that. It's not wise. Don't do that. Don't do that. Do that. And suddenly the revelation comes to that person, I shouldn't do this. I've been telling you that for years. What took so long? It's, it's just the humility, I guess. The sad part for this story is that kid had to go to the bottom of the well before he had the wake-up call. Hopefully we're wise enough not to get that far. I love this story because it's the arms of the Father that are always open. And sometime in your life you're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You're going to fall off the perch. You're going to make an unwise choice. You're going to betray somebody's trust. You're going to squander what's been entrusted to you. You're going to embarrass your loved ones. Somewhere that's going to happen. When I was in year nine at Luther College in Croydon, which is a prestigious private school, I got caught having, by the principal having sex with a girl at school. You imagine going home and telling your mum and dad that story. The shame, the guilt, the embarrassment that I put on my family. Some of the kids in year 12 thought it would be really great to write to the local newspaper and let them know the story. So the whole town knew about it. And I was expelled from that school for my behaviour. Three months later, the school rang and said, we've been discussing this as a faculty. You need to come back because we're a Christian school and we need to love, accept and forgive you. You made a mistake. Would you come back? I didn't want to go back, (laughs) but my parents made me go back because they wanted to instill in me love, acceptance and forgiveness. Were my mum and dad angry? Oh, my mum was fuming. You know, the, you know the story? Things are going to be different around here from now on. <laughs> I remember the fear and dread I had in my heart when I faced my parents. They just wept and they embraced me and they said, son, it's all right. You'll learn from this. I knew I could go home. And that's what God is saying to anyone who's broken and messy at any time. You can always come home. That's the heart of the Father. That needs to be the heart of the church. It needs to be the heart that every one of us carries. No matter what we face, no matter what we hear, no matter what we see, whether it's someone who's had an affair, whether it's someone who's into pornography, no matter it's someone who's you know, gambled half their life away, it doesn't matter what the sin is. We love, accept them, forgive them. Do they need a lecture? There's a young man on the news this week called Mitchell Pierce. He's the Roosters, Sydney football team, captain. And he got caught on videotape in in drunken state doing all sorts of stupid things, and I won't go into them here. I wonder if that guy is going to come to his senses now that he's been caught out. The funny thing about that, that phrase in Scripture, when he came to his senses, is that it's only used in one other place in the Word of God. It's quite an unusual um, construction of words. And the only other reference in Scripture is to 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and it's when Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church and he's saying, you know, respect the people that admonish you, respect the the leaders of the church, because they will, and the the phrase is, they um, they will challenge the idle and they will confront the disgruntled. And the whole sense of this is that we need to be aware of what's happening in our life so that we deal with our own messiness. It's not the responsibility of somebody else to give us the wake-up call. 
we take responsibility for putting the things in place to be whole and mature as much as we can be. The beautiful thing is we can never fall beyond the forgiveness of God. Love, acceptance and forgiveness, if you've ever done any Latin, is the sine qua non. It's the prerequisite, the essential ingredient, the thing that we cannot do without of any family. It has to be love, acceptance, forgiveness. There's going to be people that will disappoint us, frustrate us, they'll act selfishly or improperly, they'll make foolish choices, they'll react immaturely, they'll squander their resources, they'll squander their potential. We may be shocked, disturbed, even appalled at their behaviour, but it's not our place to judge them. It's not our place to give up on them. It's not our place to turn our backs on them. We have to respond with compassion. When the father saw his son off a long way, his heart was what? I'm going to give him what for when he... He did. He ran to him with compassion. Didn't give him a list of the things that he'd done wrong. Didn't blame him. He just embraced him. What did he do? He filled the fatted calf. The only one in this story that wasn't happy about the ending was the son and the calf. Because he got killed. But you think about it. What's true? Two, yeah. But I think the danger in this story for us as Christians who've been walking the journey of faith and church a long time is that our hearts end up being like like the oldest son. We begin to separate ourselves and say, but God... What about all good things I've done? I'm not like them. I'd never make a mistake like that. I bet you that pastor never thought he'd fall from grace. All the lectures that he'd given to people every Sunday about walking in truth and righteousness and holiness and suddenly he's on the flip side of everything he's preached and everything he's taught. The elder son was right. He'd faithfully served his father all those years. He hadn't made any mistakes. He'd been true and loyal. But his love and service was ultimately conditional. We've got to love, accept and and forgive people. He couldn't celebrate the restoration of his brother's life. He couldn't awaken any morsel of forgiveness in his heart. He detested his brother's brokenness. He listed prostitutes and all the things that he'd done wrong. He loathed his reinstatement. That's what made him most mad. He was jealous and he protested by refusing to go in. And anger consumed him. What a sad story. It's just a tragic story. The winner was the son, the youngest one, who had the humility to come home. And when he came home, he was met with grace and mercy. I'm going to read you one little part of the book to finish. Don't read this book if you don't want to be challenged. Have you found that you don't change easily? Many people change only under pressure. Not because they want to, but because they must. Nothing in human experience is a greater catalyst for change than pressure. Usually the pressure of some sort of difficulty or messiness. Yet we ordinarily do all we can to avoid the pressure situation. Non-pressured living has become almost a god in our world. If you design a life free of pressures, you probably almost will have a life 
of mediocrity. Count on it. Without pressure, there is little change, and without change, there can be no growth. As Dr. James Mallory puts it, people seem to assume that conflict is inherently bad or that the ideal life would be one that is conflict or mess-free. Anybody that is mess-free and conflict-free, I would suspect, is not experiencing growth. The important changes in us take place within the framework of a struggle and messiness. Another James puts it this way, is your life full of difficulties and temptations? Then be happy. For when the way is rough, your patience has a chance to grow. So let it grow and don't try to squirm out of your problems. When your patience is finally in full bloom, then you will be ready for anything, strong in character, full and complete. Welcoming difficulties in the life of the church isn't easy. Yet every difficulty that arises, there also presents an opportunity for growth, either for individual members or for the corporate church body. The church's difficulties are either problems with people, the resolution of which should lead to personal growth, or problems with practice, the resolution of which should lead to corporate growth. Problems with people tend to revolve around certain personality traits, but we need to be people that thrive in the mess. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this church and for the people that I look out on each and every week and the stories that I've heard and the lives that I've been involved with. And I thank you, God, that I can honestly say there's no superstars in this church. There's nobody who wants to lord it over other people. There's nobody who thinks that they're somehow made the upper grade. There's no superstars. Lord, I thank you that my experience has been that there's not many pretenders either. There's a very genuine authenticity about the people that come here. It's okay to say that you're struggling. It's okay to say that you've fallen over. And I pray, Father, that we think about messy church and being a family and embracing people that come with all sorts of wounds and brokenness. Father, give us a heart of compassion. I love that story when the pastor says to the other one, why would you even ring me and ask me that if you could come? Well, we want to be a place where people can come. Whether it's into our homes, people will feel love, acceptance and forgiveness. Whether it's into our Activate groups, people will find love, acceptance, forgiveness. I pray that when they walk into this gathering of people, Lord, it's not about the building, it's not about how slick we are up the front here, it's about how much we love and how much we're willing to serve others, and how much we're willing to accept people. Father, help us be a church that loves, accepts, and forgives. It's the greatest DNA that we can have to be led by those things. So, Lord, I thank you that you are God whose arms are always open. I thank you that in my life, Father, every time I've fallen and I've stumbled, and I felt inadequate, and I felt ashamed and guilty that you've always come and put your arms around me, and you've killed the fatted calf, and you've celebrated my life. 
And I thank you, God, that we have the privilege of leading every hurt and broken, messy person to those same arms of forgiveness and grace and mercy. Those same arms that will look down and say, sister, where's your accusers? We'll go and sin no more because I'm not going to judge you. Father, help us not to be critical. Help us not to be judgmental, but help us to love and to love when it makes no sense, to love beyond what is natural, to love with a sense of your heart and your compassion and your mercy that never runs dry, it never runs out, it never knows the word no or can't. We love and we love and we love and we love and we love because you first loved us. And we give 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 and we keep giving and we keep giving, even though it's frustrating, even though people don't respond, we keep giving, we keep loving, we keep loving because that's your heart. And we forgive and we forget and we forgive and we forget because one day we'll be on the other side. One day we'll need that grace. One day we'll need that mercy. One day we'll need to hear those words. It's okay. Come home. Our heart and our arms are always open. So, Lord, I pray today, we're the gathered church today, God. We've come together to exalt you, to praise your name, to set a day and time aside where we glorify the God that we serve. But as we go out and scatter this week, God, as we scatter to our workplaces and our schools and our communities and our neighbours, Father, may we go with this anthem of love, acceptance and forgiveness, no matter how messy it is, no matter what the cost is and no matter what the price to be paid is. Lord, we were born to be warriors, to fight the good fight, to not grow weary in doing good, to wade through the mess of people's life and extend our arms of fellowship and grace and mercy. We were called to be a hospital, a place where people don't come and are dismissed because of the extent of their hurt and their pain and their woundness. But what they find is the hearts of people that weep over them and get down into their vomit and their poo and their mess, and they say, come with me. I know a place where we can get clean, the arms of our Father. And Lord, help us to be a family. I think honestly, Lord, as a church, as Catalyst, as churches right across this nation, we don't know what it means to be family. When it gets tough, we run away. We're so selfish, it's all about us. But we need to Change the attitude of our heart, God, so that we're like that Father, full of compassion, waiting, watching, ready for the moment when that prodigal son or daughter is willing to come home, that the doors are flung open wide and the best robe is put on them and the signet ring goes on their finger and the feast and the celebration shouts, the good things that God is doing in the lives of our brothers and sisters. So, Lord, it is messy. It's overwhelming at times. It's difficult to keep the right attitude. Sometimes it's nicer just to be once removed from everything so we don't have to buy in. 
But Lord, that's not your way. You hung around with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the people that the world said were the most messy, they were the ones that you went to. We need to be like that, Lord. So help us, Father, as we stand on the threshold of a new year to do it as a church with our sleeves rolled up, willing to do the things that build family, willing to do the things that create a hospital environment, willing to do the things that we're an army that's marching and fighting for those who are held captive in bondage, God. Because if we're not praying, who is? If we're not believing, who is? If we're not speaking truth in their life, who is? If we're not leading them to a better way and a better place, who is? It's up to us, Lord, to get out of our pig pants and take as many people with us as we can into the loving arms of the God who rescued us and put our feet upon a rock. I will love you, Lord, my strength. Lord, that's where we'll get the strength from to love these people and to love ourselves and to love our neighbours. It can only come from you. And Lord, I will love you, Lord, my shield. Lord, shield me from being like that eldest son who couldn't love And Lord, you are my rock. You're the rock of this church. You're the rock of the ages. You will never change. You'll be the same tomorrow. Your attitude to messiness will never change. You want us to be in the mess. You call us to be in the mess because we're the catalyst to make the mess something beautiful as we bring your presence and your power and your grace and your mercy. So, Father, I want to thank you for Catalyst Church. I thank you for everyone that's here, for the beautiful hearts that they have. Father, renew our sense of what it means to be a messy church, not to be frightened of that, not to be fearful of that, but to say by the grace and mercy of a God who's alive and not dead, we'll see restoration, we'll see regeneration, we'll see revival, we'll see renewal. We'll see hope restored. We'll see people's lives transformed by the only one who can bring that revelation, and that's you. So, Father, today as we step out of this place, as we congregate together, there's people in this place that are hurting, that are wounded, that are struggling. Father, help us to embrace them and walk with them. We just want to be the people that you've called us to be today, Lord. The true church of Jesus Christ. Not a fancy building, not loud, flashy music, the hearts that are open to serve, to fight, and to heal. So, Lord, we give it to you this year, God. Lord, I can't do it in my own strength. I look at what you call us to do as leaders, and I just go, Lord, It's too much for my shoulders to bear. There's too much hurt. There's too many needy people. I need your grace and I need your power and I need your compassion to flow through me if I'm ever going to make a difference. And I pray, Lord, that would be the cry of every one of our hearts to serve and honour you by loving the people that are messed up and hurting and wounded.
So we give it to you today in Jesus' name.